The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm joined today by Arthur Krober. He is the founding partner and head of research at GavCal Dragonomics. When I started following it, it was just called Dragonomics, which is a global economic research firm, and he's also editor of its journal, China Economic Quarterly. I've followed Arthur for how many years? About 25 years writing from Beijing? Many, 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 many years. years um, so he has just come out with a book, which is called China's Economy, What Everyone Needs to Know. As I read it, I kind of said, what everyone needs to know and is afraid to ask. So that's kind of the way I look at it. But it's kind of a primer on China's economy. So let me start with the first question before getting into the economy is, why this book, why now, and who are you aiming at? Well, uh, the basic, there were two reasons for writing the book. One was I'd been looking for an excuse for a long time to distill the work that I've done over the last... 15, 20 years with my colleagues at uh, Dragonomics into a more helpful uh, synthesis, uh, and Oxford University Press indicated that they were interested, so it was it was a good opportunity to take a lot of years of work and boil down their essence. And then the second thing is I, I keep getting asked by uh, clients and, and other people that I meet, what's the one thing that I can read that will just in a very short amount of time tell me the key things that I need to know? And there really wasn't anything out there that was accessible to a broad audience. So the intention is to give people, uh, general readers and also university undergraduates, a uh, synopsis of what's happened in China over the last 35 years economically, how it got to where it is, what the challenges are now, and where it's going. What do you think is the part of China's economy that Americans misunderstand the most? What are you asked, asked about the most? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, there are a lot of misunderstandings, yes. but I, I yes. think the I think the core un, uh, mis, misunderstanding, and, and it's because it's difficult to to, under, to uh, get a handle on, is the nature of the relationship between the state and the market, because China is very contradictory. On the one hand, it has this very large, and in some ways, a very overbearing state. The Communist Party reaches into all aspects of, of of life and society and tries to control a lot of things. Still, not individual lives, but a lot of the big economic uh, pieces. But at the same time, you have a, an almost Wild West type of, of very rambunctious capitalism with a lot of private sector dynamism. And it's very, very difficult to understand how those two, two things work together. And I, I think the biggest problem that Americans and foreigners in general have had is they, they kind of look at this combination and they say, this is unstable. It can't possibly last. Within two or three years, either the political system will break down or the economy will stop growing. And as long as I've been in and out of China, which is now 30 years since the mid-'80s, people have been saying that, and they've always been wrong. So understanding why that perspective, which is understandable, isn't right, and and exactly how these different political and economic realities can coexist is that's the real tough challenge. Actually. And the book lays that out. The yeah. book tries to address exactly those issues. Let's talk about the economy today. Obviously, it is slowing. Um, everyone asks, will the landing be hard or soft? And what does that even mean? 
What is a hard? I've never understood when I see this discussion. What is a hard landing and what is a soft landing? Well, this is it a GDP number? Is well, it, it's sort of like whatever anyone wants it to be. I, I have a problem with that because it's not it's not a strictly defined term. People make up all kinds of definitions to suit their their uh, their predispositions. But I think when when people say something bad is going to happen in China and they're worried about that, they're worried about one or one of two things. One is that the financial imbalances, which are quite great, get to the point where you have a financial crisis, a meltdown that might look something like what happened in the United States in 2008, or it might look some, like something like what happened in, in uh, Southeast Asia and Financial Korea. imbalance. You mean right. too much debt. Too much debt, right. So that's one bad thing that could happen, is you could have a, um, you know, a, a big financial crisis. When people talk about a hard landing, I think what they're talking about is a sudden downshift in growth to maybe not negative numbers, but maybe 1% or 2%, a, a number that's much lower than people generally think is necessary to keep uh, keep people happy in China. My view is that both of those uh, issues are concerns, but more on a sort of a medium to long-term range, not in the next year or two. Um, and that the basic reasons for this are that, first of all, there's an enormous amount of domestic saving in the Chinese economy. They have a domestic saving rate about 50%. Of GDP, this means that the government has a lot of resources at its disposal to deal with economic downturn problems or financial problems as they arise. Now they can't keep just throwing money at these problems forever; they have to deal with the underlying structural problems. But for the next couple of years, I think they clearly have plenty of ammunition to uh, keep growth at roughly the current level. Mm -hmm. We have debt at roughly two and a half times GDP. Roughly, yeah. How does that play out? Do we see a nationalization of the debt? I mean, China obviously does not have the situation which existed in Asia in 1997, where people had a lot, where countries had a lot of foreign currency debt. Right. Which is China actually is, right. doesn't have a net debt in Correct. foreign currency. So, but how does it play out domestically? How do you foresee that? Well, it's um, a very interesting and difficult question because, as you say, a lot of countries, Southeast Asia, Latin America, in the 1980s, they get into debt problems because too much of their debt is owed to foreigners. Right in foreign currency, and then the exchange rate falls, or the foreign banks want to call in their loans, and, and suddenly the, the whole financial system is at risk. China doesn't have that problem. They have a, a, a problem that there's been a huge increase in the debt level over the last seven or eight years. Most of the increase in that debt is the result of borrowing by state-owned enterprises and, to some degree, local governments to fund infrastructure programs. Um, a lot of that infrastructure is useful, but a lot of it is not delivering a financial return. So you have a lot of bad debts building up in the system. But the tricky thing is that as long as this is debt owed with inside China in the domestic currency, and often both sides of the debt are state-owned, so it's a state-owned bank lending to a state-owned company or a local government, uh, you can actually keep accumulating those claims for a very long time without anything bad necessarily happening. And the problem comes when the banks are unable, essentially, to raise enough deposits to to finance their their loans. But and the central government could step in and, and they could. effectively nationalize the debt, they, take the debt correct. off the balance sheets of the state-owned banks, right. and put them in what they did many years ago. These, that's right. These asset management companies. Correct. And I think Do that's you expect that's going to well. Happen? I think that's the most obvious uh, solution to the problem. Uh, 
And what's interesting to me is that the government, it, it's, it's very obvious, and they've done it before, but the government has been very reluctant to go in and do it again. And so there's, I think there's an open question. Moral hazard? What's the reason? No one knows. I think it's not clear. I mean, the Ministry of Finance has always been very resistant to this because they want to keep the explicit debt of the central government as low as possible. So they're always against recognizing these things. But other than that, I think it's a very uh, difficult question to answer why they're unwilling to bite that bullet. And I think that the answer is that if you do that, you also have to do a couple of other things to make sure that you don't simply pile up more bad debt after that. And what you have to do basically is restructure the state-owned enterprises and make the state-owned enterprise sector a lot smaller than it is today. And because the state enterprises are so bound up with the Communist Party power structure, I think there's a lot of reluctance to, to bite that bullet. GD, you made reference to GDP, and we always see when people are looking at the Chinese economy, this reference to GDP, that's 11, 8, now 6, 6.7. Um, doesn't it really not matter anymore? Shouldn't, it, shouldn't we really be looking at employment creation? Because as the economy shifts from investment-led to consumption-led, doesn't GDP become, well, whatever, it doesn't matter? really matters how many jobs you create? Well, I think in principle there are two things that matter. One is employment, and employment growth has actually been pretty solid for the last several years, uh, and it's held up much better than GDP growth. Uh, But then the second thing you have to look at is the underlying productivity growth. So you do want to look at the component of GDP, not the headline GDP number, but the part of GDP that's coming from improvements in technology and and greater efficiency. And as long as you're getting solid productivity growth, that means that you can sustain gains in employment and income, not just for the next year or two, but for the next decade or two or three, which is what you need to do. Because if you're just generating employment through make-work jobs, that that will ultimately run out out of steam. So I think you want to look at those two indicators. And a lot of economists in China, I think, are, are very clear. And in, in fact, many parts of the leadership are also clear that that's what you should look at. But it's been very, very difficult for the party to abandon the GDP growth target because it's been such an important organizing principle and motivational factor uh, for government officials that their problem is if you take that target away, what do you replace it with that's as handy? And so far, they haven't come up with a, a solution. I would argue employment growth. They should. The problem is that the social stability issue, really. Well, but again, I think the problem is if you just incentivize people to increase employment without the underlying productivity growth, it's tough, and and you run into measurement problems. So it's a. I agree with you in principle. I think executing on that idea has turned out to be tricky. The third plenum of the 18th Party Congress lays out a very ambitious reform agenda. If you were to score the success of this the implementation of this reform agenda from one to a hundred, with one not having implemented any to a hundred having fully implemented. Where would you put it? Where would you put the number? And where would you point to successes? And where would you point to failures? And I know this is going to have to be overly general because we don't have much time. For sure. Uh, I would give them an overall score of about 20 to 30, which is pretty low. Um, I think there have been significant uh, improvements in the financial sector, but these have also created a lot of volatility and uncertainty in, for example, the stock market. So they've done some of the right things, but it's been very messy. Um, they've made a little bit of progress on the on the fiscal reforms, uh, improving the finances of local government, but there's still a lot to do. And I think in the last year or so, the local governments have just gone back to their bad ways of piling debt on debt. Um, 
and then when you look at the other key area of reform, which is the state-owned enterprises, very little has occurred, and in fact, they seem to have regressed from some of the ideas and promises that they had around the time of the Third Plenum to the much more tepid uh, and, I think, regressive uh, ideas about the state enterprise reform that, that have uh, circulated more recently. We have an election going on here. It's hard to believe, I know, sitting in China, that, that the valuation of the RMB remains an issue in the United States. Is it fairly valued? Well, of course, that's very hard to tell because the government keeps intervening to, to kind of arrange its value. But broad, Different, Differently yes. from the Japanese and others who also yeah, more, intervene in, more, in more a extensively, More extensively, I think, than the, than the Japanese. And, and for years, I think... Qualitatively or quantitatively? Well, both. And I, for years, I felt that this was perfectly defensible. I think uh, at an early stage of development, countries ought to keep their currencies very stable. Uh, they should not open up their capital markets too quickly. Uh, that can get you in a lot of trouble. So I, for years, I thought they had an appropriate stance. Um, and in fact, you saw a very significant uh, appreciation of the, of the renminbi since 2008, and particularly in 2014 and 2015. So I think what you can say now is that the, the currency is approximately at the, at the right value. It's not it's appreciation vis-a-vis a basket or vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar. Uh, mainly versus a dollar uh, against the well, dollar. Fifteen, I think we were. We weren't. There was no. No, no, but between 2014 and 2015, until the middle of last year, right, until August of last year, there was year about a 25. The up. Right, there was a 25 percent appreciation of the uh, uh, of the renminbi against the dollar. So if you look at the renminbi against the dollar, I don't think that you can argue that there is a very substantial misalignment. I think the problem is that now is the time for them to sh- allow the renminbi to be a little bit more flexible, and to let the market have more say on a day-to-day basis where the currency goes. And I think that will give people more confidence once you have a track record of that, that, oh, yeah, well, this actually is pretty much fairly valued. Right now, there's enough government intervention that it, um, I think it creates some doubt as to whether it's really uh, fairly valued or not. We're seeing an enormous uh, outflow of capital from China. We're seeing Chinese investment in the United States, in Europe, in Southeast Asia, growing at a geometric rate. What's going on? What's driving that? Well, part of it is it's just like China is being normal. I mean, they've, they've accumulated vast wealth domestically. Growth is slowing a little bit, as you would expect. And uh, Chinese investors, uh, private companies, are looking around and saying, well, actually, there are now some, some good opportunities outside of China. Let's put some work. We have a lot of money at work in China. Let's take some of them, our money, and put it to work outside. So there's a, I think there's a very normal process of as a country grows richer and its industrial base stronger, it sees a lot more opportunities outside. So right now, about a third of outward investment is by private companies. It's not just state companies going out in search of coal mines or uh, iron ore mines or whatever. Uh, so I think that's part of what's going on. I think there is some strategic investment by state companies and things that, that serve uh, government priorities. Um, there are, There's some policy-driven uh, uh, investment in things like infrastructure in Southeast Asia and Central Asia, and this is a matter of big dispute. I think there are you know, some issues there, but broadly I think that's, that's positive for the recipient countries. Um, and then I think you also have a smaller proportion is there are some people who are just worried about the security of their wealth and they want to get it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when you look at the, 
the analysis of outward capital flows in the media, I think they basically look at that last element and say that's all of what's going on. It's capital flight, people running away because they're scared. And I think that's actually a relatively small proportion of the total uh, outward capital flows. This conversation could go on for hours, but I will bring it to a close and given everyone a taste of what is in this book, China's Economy, What Everyone Needs to Know by Arthur Krober, who's been with us this afternoon. Arthur, thank you. Thank you.